This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, Ben Mathis here with just a quick announcement. If you enjoy this episode, I hope you'll subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes and support the podcast by donating to our annual fundraising drive at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics or click on the donate button on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the show. Accidental president. That's what they'll say. I have a genuine desire to unite people. LBJ wants our support. We're going to hold his feet to the fire. Everybody wants power. Everybody thinks it ought to be given out like Mardi Gras bees. A democratic president ignoring his own party. Shameful. You have to decide how you want history to remember you. That was a trailer for the new HBO film All the Way, which follows a year in the life of President Lyndon Johnson, from the assassination of John F. Kennedy through Johnson's passage of the Civil Rights Act and his eventual re-election. It stars Brian Cranston of Breaking Bad fame in what will certainly be an award-winning performance as LBJ, and I predict another Emmy for my guest today, the film's director, Jay Roach. Jay has directed some of the best-loved comedy features of the past 20 years, including all three Austin Powers movies, Meet the Parents, and the sequel, Meet the Fockers, Mystery Alaska, Dinner for Schmucks, and The Campaign. He also produced such films as Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Borat, Bruno, and Sisters. More recently, Jay Roach's work has taken on a decidedly political tone. He directed last year's critically acclaimed film Trumbo, in which Brian Cranston played the blacklisted screenwriter of the same name. Plus, he directed and produced the movie adaptations of John Heilman and Mark Halpern's bestsellers Recount, about the 2000 presidential election, and Game Change, which followed the 2008 McCain-Palin campaign. Both of those films for HBO earned Jay Roach Emmy Awards for Outstanding Directing for a Miniseries, Movie, or Dramatic Special, and for Overall Outstanding Miniseries or Movie. Game Change also garnered him a Peabody Award and a Golden Globe for Best Miniseries or Television Film. Now, Jay Roach returns to politics in his new film, All the Way, also for HBO. And today, we'll discuss where his interest in political subject matter comes from. We'll talk about some of Lyndon Johnson's infamous and even bizarre negotiating tactics. We'll discuss why LBJ took a huge political risk in fighting for the Civil Rights Act, and how it nearly led to the South walking out on him at the Democratic National Convention. Plus, we'll talk about his complicated relationships with Martin Luther King, Hubert Humphrey, his wife, and J. Edgar Hoover. And we'll ponder whether LBJ, the ultimate Washington insider, would survive or thrive in today's anti-establishment political climate. Coming up with director J. Roach in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics, 
And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. My guest today is the director of such modern comedy classics as the Austin Powers trilogy, Meet the Parents, and its sequel, Meet the Fockers, as well as last year's critically acclaimed movie, Trumbo. He's won Emmys for his more politically charged movies, Recount and Game Change for HBO, and he's dipping back into the political well for his newest film for HBO called All the Way, starring the brilliant Brian Cranston as President Lyndon Johnson. Jay Roach, thanks for coming by. Uh, it's great to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get into All the Way, I just want to tell you, when I was a film student at USC, just a few years after you actually, you ruined a holiday party I threw once. <laughs> a friend of mine, uh, Philippa Burgess, who I think she worked for uh, Doug McLaren at ICM. Yes. And she brought a VHS tape of the extended trailer for this new movie, Austin Powers. This was months before the movie came out, and no one had even heard of Austin Powers. We laughed our asses off, but then every time someone walked into my Christmas party, we had to stop everything and show them the Austin Powers trailer again. And this happened for like 15, 20 times throughout the whole evening. We dro had to drop everything. Everyone had to hush and stop talking. That's <laughs> so, really, that's funny. That. You know, that that uh, video was leaked uh, completely illegally by my agents and they didn't tell me they were doing it. And I kept hearing about it, uh, you know, and it was like a five minute teaser thing. And thank God they did because it, it never tested well. And the studio, I think, always wondered if really? it was going to work. Yeah, it never tested above uh, like a 55, which is, you know, most films would be buried if they didn't test above 70 because it was such a specific, slightly weird vibe, especially based on what Mike Myers had done before. Uh, and so... The studio started hearing about it through this leaked pirated tape that people would just call up and say, oh, I just saw this thing. And so they thought, well, maybe there is something, you know, an acquired taste because it was already getting a kind of a buzz around town. And, and I think it actually saved us. We might never have gotten out if it hadn't been for that tape you saw. Well, yeah. And I think it was the previous holiday that the big VHS tape that everyone was circulating around was the South Park guys. Right, right, right. The, That's the right. George Clooney South Park Christmas video. Yeah. Wasn't yeah. that uh, Santa Claus versus Jesus? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's crazy to think yeah. that we were going circulating all these things on, you know, homemade VHS, VHS back know, in those days, pre-YouTube. Well, you know, I know that, I think that you're a Democrat. I'm pretty sure. Yes. You're a okay, you're a Democrat. Okay, I thought so. But you know who's a huge Austin Powers fan? George W. Bush. Yes. Did you know yes, that? Yes, I've heard that. Yes. Uh, he's, he actually, uh, he's liked to meet the parents too. We kept hearing Did it. He really? So I was like, okay, well, maybe maybe we have more in common than uh, I might have expected. <laughs> well, yeah, because I'm from Texas and I, you know, I kind of knew knew him and, and I remember he was always going around, yeah, baby, Shagadelic. Oh my yeah, gosh, baby. that's great. That's but, but he was he was doing it like four or five years after the movie came out so hey man there's hope that comedy <laughs> comedy can unify it. us you know that's that's uh that's a, a pipe dream but maybe there's something to it yeah well since you brought that up your biggest feature film hits have been so far have been comedies like austin powers and meet the parents but your films for hbo which include recount and game change both of which won emmys two emmys i think mm -hmm. for you each of them mm -hmm. and now all the way have been quite politically charged 
were you always this political or is this something that came with maturity? How did this come about? Well, it's funny you were uh, mentioning Texas earlier. My father is from Texas and he's conservative. And my um, my family is kind of a, a whole mixed up political, you know, array of <laughs> highly charged opinions. So I spent a lot of my youth uh, arguing about politics. And, and I don't know what the instinct was. I, I think because I related so much with my mom and she was she was a little more progressive. And anyway, I just grew up arguing and, and, and it drove curiosity, but it also made me think a lot harder about what mattered, why I, why I did care about some of these issues and, and why I would be so intense with it, with my dad. Um, we still argue, uh, intensively. Um, he, uh, you know, when I made the Sarah Palin movie, he said, now you don't go messing with our Sarah, you know? And so we, oh no. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I knew I was stepping into something, but he actually liked the film because, you know, we did, uh, help people connect to what it was like to go through what she went through and yeah. uh and um and you know a lot of people on the right like to recount too because in all of these films I just try to get the story right I certainly have a world view but I I most it's mostly important to me to just tell a story to try to get to the the truth of what happened the authentic the authentic experience of what these characters were going through and that's really the best you can do you can never get uh, to some sort of moment-to-moment, um, fact-by-fact accuracy because you're doing right. a two-hour movie. They're actors. It, it, it is, you know, you're on sets. It's all, some to some extent, make-believe. But if you work at it and you really make just get it right your mantra, then you can get close. You can get it, and, and hopefully you can at least spark conversation, be entertaining. I try to work a little humor into these stories once in a while. Oh, yeah. Because uh, politics has absurdity and <laughs> irony, and uh, you know even ridiculousness sometimes. So uh, the train, the comedy training helped. But I really think it all started with just um, I don't know, just defending my worldview and and being anxious about it. I'm really I'm always nervous about where where are we going? How did we get here? And can it go a little better? <laughs> and so <laughs> that's what that's what drives the interest. Well, was it success that made you feel a little more comfortable? having a political voice and putting it out there? You know, I worked in, I, I was pre-law in college and I uh, studied economics. I got a degree in economics and I was I was interested in politics. I was a student politico in high school. I didn't, I didn't go into that so much in college. And actually in college, uh, as I started studying economics, I was also doing work study, working my way through school in the film department at Stanford. It was a, a small documentary department, but it was... A really cool group of people and I cleaned the sound heads you know on the on the editing desks and uh, editing machines and I I just uh, started getting tempted by the storytelling aspect somehow um, telling stories about politics seemed uh, as interesting as politics itself and so I you know I I came out of film school I went to USC film school and then I came out and was writing a lot more serious uh, material, sci-fi and things that were were more oh. connected to the things that I later got into. And it just so happened that years later I got this break to do Austin Powers. So the comedy thing was more the diversion in a way. Okay. And I was sort of waiting to get a chance to get back into more serious stuff. 
Okay, so you're getting back to your roots then, to some in extent. In a way, yeah. Where in Texas were you from? My, I'm, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but okay. both my parents are from, uh, they met in Amarillo. Uh, my oh, okay. dad's family is from down in the middle of Odessa area, San Angelo. Okay. Uh, and my mom was spent her whole life in Amarillo, Texas. Okay, okay. An Amarillo romance. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, good that your dad thought that you were fair to Sarah Palin. A lot of people gave you, I think, a lot of flack for that. Um, I didn't think that it was a particularly unsympathetic or unfair portrayal. But I have to say, it must be nice to deal with characters who are mostly dead in this film <laughs> and can't take any issue with the, your portrayal of them. Uh, you know, it's always there are always people who care deeply about how, especially uh, iconic characters are portrayed. Yeah, true. Um, and and by the way, most of the flack we got from on the Palin movie was from were from from people that worked, you know, for her. You know, we didn't get mm -hmm. that much flack even from the right because there were some people. I mean, that the whole story takes place from the point of view of the Republicans who worked on the McCain-Palin right. campaign. Right. So uh, there were a lot of uh, Republicans who really loved that movie because they saw the the kind of uh, catastrophe that n nearly happened and were wondering, how did we, uh, the, the GOP, get to this place? And, and it's yeah. interesting in relation to the Trump situation now because in a way Palin paved the way for for the kind of campaign he's running so and I think there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle would who would uh you know who who had issues with 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 that approach so yeah. uh but on this film you know the there are people who care very much about how LBJ is portrayed and how uh, Dr. Martin Luther King is portrayed true so we were um we had a we had a fairly daunting, you know, pre predicament going into this to just try to, again, try to get it right. But I had seen the play. I had seen it twice, actually. That's uh, right. It's based on a play. Yeah, based on a great play by Robert Schenck, and it won a Tony Award for the play, and 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 uh, Cranston won a, a Tony Award for portraying LBJ. I was I got to see it while I was prepping for Trumbo, which is the film I made uh, last year. And uh, during that time, Spielberg and HBO came to me and said, would you direct the adaptation of, of All the Way? Uh, I said yes, even not knowing whether Trumbo would go well. I was hoping Brian would, and I would get along, and we, we did, and that's, that's, uh, that's how it happened. Yeah, I noticed that uh, Steven Spielberg was an executive producer on this. What was his involvement with this project? He uh, saw the play. Uh, he, uh, DreamWorks brought, they sort of... Uh, talked to the playwright and got the rights and and, and teamed up with HBO okay. uh, got Shankin to do the the screenplay uh, adapting his own play and um, I th I don't know exactly when he decided that he he, he I think he might have just thought about directing it for a while but uh, he, I've known him for some time he was uh, involved in meet the parents he was actually for a while thinking about directing that as well so I, I, I'm happy okay. to get Steven Spielberg's hand-me-downs <laughs> oh yeah those are good you know people a couple win, of good ones people have won Oscars with Steven Spielberg's <laughs> hand-me-downs yeah exactly yeah. so uh, uh and and I I admire him he's a he's been a, a mentor figure for me and has always been supportive of of the political films as well he's obviously as you see in the films he's done like Lincoln and Schindler's List he's very interested in politics yeah. and so he um he approached me and said, "Would you take this on?" And he he stayed involved. He he read drafts. He 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 watched many of the cuts. Had fantastic uh, notes in the edit. Um, was helpful in some of the casting uh, uh, 
ideas as well. So yeah, it was a, it was a fantastic collaboration. Well, yeah, and when I was watching it, one thing it reminded me of was Lincoln, because it's that rare glimpse into the political side of people that you know, but you don't really know. That yeah. insiders look at the actual horse trading the wheeling and dealing, the smoky back room. And I loved that. And also the psychology, you know, it is it is great. Film can take you into the back rooms. That's why I have made all of these films because I, I always say I want to be in the room where they decided, you know, <laughs> to have Sarah Palin be the vice presidential candidate. I want to yeah. be in the rooms when they're fighting over the idea of whether hand counting in, in the recount was somehow, you know, inappropriate. <laughs> and in this case, I wanted to be in the rooms where where LBJ, after uh, achieving the dream he chased for his entire life, which was to be president of the United States, becomes president, but in the worst possible yeah. situation after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And, and then instead of shrinking back, takes on one of the most combustible issues of the time, which was, which was civil rights, and, and decides to go against his Southern brethren uh, uh, to pass the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that I love about this movie is it's the version of LBJ that I've always wanted to see. Because mm -hmm. if you ever talk to anyone who ever actually dealt with LBJ, they would tell you his greatest strength was he was this brilliant master horse trader mm -hmm. who knew how to get his way. And aside from the arc of civil rights, for me, this was really a master class in the exercise of political power. That's right. Uh, he had been in the House of Representatives as a representative for a dozen years, another dozen years as a U.S. senator, and had become the, uh, the, the, the head, you know, the, the um, Senate minor majority leader. So he was one of the right. most powerful and capable oh, people yeah. and maybe one of the most capable Senate majority leaders of all time. He had had engineered so much legislation and then kind of stepped back, frankly, when he became vice president under Kennedy. And then when Kennedy passes, he he reconnects with all of that ability to uh, to you know, finagle, horse trade, mm -hmm. pressure. Uh, he used to get in people's faces and deliver what's called the Johnson <laughs> the treatment, Johnson treatment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or the Texas twist, you know, yeah. uh, where he would get a, about half an inch from your, your nose and, and uh, flatter you at first and make you laugh with really off-color jokes and then eventually <laughs> have his way with you basically and get you to sign on to his agenda. Yeah, I love that you've included some of my favorite anecdotes about LBJ. Uh, there's one story of him when he's in a meeting, and I think in your version, it's with Hubert Humphrey. That's right. And he's in the middle of a meeting, and he just says, you know, come with me, follow me. He proceeds to go to the bathroom and literally start taking a dump and says, oh, go on. What did you, what do you, what do you want to talk about? Yeah. And I mean... This is a guy who knew how to put you in your place real quick. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, th those are definitely uh, apocryphal stories of his. And it's hard to imagine someone being so uninhibited. There are so many more that were even, uh, you know, yeah. kind of blood curdling, that, uh, including uh, forcing uh, some of his uh, colleagues to go skinny dipping with him and then, uh, you know, making fun of the comparison between <laughs> their Yeah, their he private was very parts. proud of his male <laughs> member, wasn't he? Uh, his Johnson was... Uh, uh, legendary. He used so, to call it Jumbo, I think. J I read. Johnson's Jumbo. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he was uh, he was not afraid to use. In a way, they were all part of the manipulation. Uh, part of they, he would 
he would joke with you, prank you, get you off balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also uh, famously would, you know, drive around, uh, have you go on a, a drive in his convertible, uh, drinking, driving ninety miles an hour on a, <laughs> on a, a road, and then suddenly veer off, you know, and go into a lake and reveal that that his car was amphibious, uh, and just to mess with you, and then start to get into after you kind of got your wits back together after being scared to death, get, get, start to to force you into a negotiation. So it was all part of that very, very capable um, legislative kind of uh, back and forth that I think is a lost mm-hmm. art. Yeah, yeah, it is. And contrary to, I think, a lot of people's popular imagination, it wasn't just bluster and beating people down. There was the other side, and there's a scene in there that I like because I think it shows this. There's this rare moment of deference on his part when he's sitting down with Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. and it's almost barely perceptible, but it's in the White House, and the butler brings in tea to the Oval Office, and LBJ dismisses the butler, and then he pours the tea for Martin Luther King himself. And it's such a little thing, but I say, mm. I think it says a hell of a lot about him. I'm. It's really perceptive of you to catch that detail. Uh, it's an African-American butler who right. also has a little uh, exchange of looks with King right. right before. Johnson knows what's going on, and, and he wants Dr. King to trust him, and he knows he doesn't. He, uh, Johnson had been involved in, in civil rights legislation in the past. Is much of it had been watered down because it was impossible to get civil rights legislation passed through the the House, which was run by the Dixiecrats, the strong conservative uh, Democrats at the time, which is hard to picture now, but that's how that party had been set up, and 1964 actually changed all that. But he knew King wasn't um, sure he could trust Johnson to follow through. King had been disappointed by president after president, and even JFK, who was yeah. an advocate of civil rights, had failed to get it passed. And Johnson knew he was going to use this this uh, tragedy uh, that had befallen the country uh, and the goodwill that came out in reaction as as everyone tried to stick together and hold the country together to do uh, real legislation that wasn't just political expediency for him. It actually was risky for him to go against the South yeah. and improve the quality of life of African-Americans and all Americans, really, uh, with the, the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And he needed King to trust him. So he was he was willing to put himself on the on an equal footing. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back to talk more with Director Jay Roach. Back in just a moment. Hey folks, do you like reading but find it harder and harder to make time to curl up with a good book? Well, there's a solution. Give audiobooks a try. They're perfect for your commute to work or working out at the gym or relaxing in the bath or anytime really. And right now you can take an audiobook for a spin with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics to get a free 30-day trial and download any of Audible's 180,000 titles for free. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And if you like Kickass Politics, then be a part of what I'm doing here and help us raise our production budget for 2016 by donating to our annual fundraising drive at GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. 
or click on the Donate button on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. We're back, and today I'm talking with director Jay Roach about his new movie, All the Way, for HBO. Well, Jay, the movie follows a year in the life of Lyndon Johnson from the moment he takes over as president when JFK is assassinated through the passage of the Civil Rights Bill and through his fight to get reelected or really elected because he had never been actually elected before. And he's very aware of that. He's an unelected president a year from reelection. And he knows civil rights is a third rail for many in his own party. So why did he decide to take this on? Was it personal or was it political for him? I think it was a combination, but I think it was mostly personal. There's a a scene in our film where he describes his experience uh, as a high school teacher, straight out of college, teaching Mexican kids in uh, a small school in Cotula, Texas, and how he saw their eagerness to learn uh, sort of disappear over time as they realized that they were going to be discriminated against just because of the color of their skin. Yeah. And you see he delivers that speech in a press conference so you you know there would be the temptation to think well it's just a political uh, posture but he he truly felt it and the way I the reason I believe that is because he he really was taking a huge risk. He was the accidental president. He knew he was seen that way, and he knew he was the usurper to the throne in a very mm-hmm. Shakespearean way. By the way, his yeah. predecessors murdered in Texas. His the brother, you know, in a way seemed to be the the heir to that throne. Yeah. He's sus- suspected. He's uh, you know he's he's the this the, the Texan come to the north. You know all those things, and so it was kind of Shakespearean. But he chose to do, and uh, in, in, instead of consolidating power, they say power reveals character. He chose mm-hmm. to use his power to to write a uh, decades long injustice, or centuries long injustice in our country, and and help uh, all people who are who would be uh, victims of of discrimination by by taking on this 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 thing, and instantly was um, attacked intensely by his former colleagues, including his former mentor, uh, Senator Dick Russell, who Frank Langella plays in our film. Yeah. And, you know, he grew up in poverty. So I guess there was kind of this sense of him being on the side of the underdog throughout his life. I think I think that's he always felt like the underdog, even even though he had been in in very powerful positions. Um, He hadn't gone to a fancy college, for example. And that was a, a, a real uh, source of pride for him in a certain way uh, uh, with all the Harvard educated uh, Eastern intellectuals. but he he also he did relate with um, with people who were who were sort of kept under the boot, you know mm-hmm. and and he needed he Dr. King and all the civil rights leaders were going to be his allies. I mean, he, he definitely did not do this alone. Uh, there was a tremendous. Yeah force uh, in the South, um, led by Dr. King, but but other leaders as well. And one of the great things I love about Schenken's script was that you see Dr. King is being pulled in all different directions by the more conservative mm-hmm. NAACP, yeah. by the more radical yeah. Stokely Carmichael and Bob Moses. And he's trying to figure out how to deliver what he's promised Johnson, which is to yeah. keep things uh of, you know, to keep the fire on down there, but not so much fire that it got out of control and Johnson needed him for that. So I love the collaboration uh, Schenken yeah. writes into the to, to tell that story. It's an interesting parallel. 
because in some ways they're kind of in the same position absolutely with their own constituency yeah i i really did love that and you know the other great thing is it's only kind of dropped in here and there throughout the film but for the audience watching in full hindsight there's this ticking time bomb of vietnam because you know the moment that breaks out it's going to suck up all the oxygen and they're going to miss their moment to pass civil rights yeah you you definitely know you you're absolutely uh on top of what happened with LBJ, we have a tough time looking backwards and seeing through Vietnam to these earlier years yeah. uh, of LBJ's because uh, of what happened, and it, it became, you know, so so much of the the problem for Johnson that, of course, by 1968 he's so unpopular, he's, he's and his health is uh, flagging, and he chooses not to run, and uh, yeah. it was a, a major thing to uh, he because he had done so much incredible legislation in his first couple of years. Um, so it, it it is we do sh we do show the beginnings of the escalation because we do cover the Gulf of Tonkin mm -hmm. incident. Um, we have uh, Bradley Whitford plays Hubert Humphrey. I have this incredible cast, which I, yeah, I yeah. felt so lucky to assemble. Uh, Bradley Whitford, who, you know, uh, he's so great at playing the kind of guy he really is, but he completely transforms into Hubert Humphrey mm -hmm. before your eyes, uh, who's such a great character. Uh, Melissa Leo plays Lady Bird, uh, Frank Langella, I mentioned, plays Dick Russell. Oh, yeah. Stephen Root plays my favorite Hoover that I've seen. I really love what he did, how <laughs> yeah. how uh, strange and intense uh, Hoover becomes with Stephen Root. And it's interesting, that relationship, because Hoover's kind of intimidated by LBJ. And I think LBJ must have been the only president who could intimidate Hoover, who had lifetime security, basically, because he had so much dirt on everyone. Yeah. LBJ had mistresses and skeletons. How mm -hmm. come he wasn't intimidated by Hoover? That's a really good question. I It makes you wonder uh, if they might have been a little more, you know, uh, in league with each other than any of us knew at, at any point in the in their okay. past. But I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, I do think uh, that there that Hoover defied LBJ and and um, wiretapped King to such an extent, even trying to get at his personal life, which Johnson thought was a terrible idea. So as much as he uh, pretends to uh, be serving the president um, obediently in the film, there's also, it's clear that he's got his own agenda. And by right. the end of the film, he does a very, very dark thing uh, in relation to Martin Luther King, which I won't, I won't give up in case people don't remember it. But he, uh, he, as you know, it's 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 been a an age old thing in our country to tar any progressive movement, uh, you know, having just worked on the Trumbo movie with right. with uh, attacks of being communist. People wouldn't be rising up in, right. against our great system if they hadn't been infiltrated by foreigners with a foreign a foreign idea. And that's you know that's the yeah. that's the propaganda. Yeah, and toward the end of the movie, there's a great scene there with Hoover that I just yeah. love because, uh, you know, and this is an incident that people forget about, but LBJ's right-hand man, I think, what was his name? Walker? Walter Jenkins. Walter Jenkins uh, gets arrested by Vice Squad for, uh, he's in a men's room and he has a little dalliance with, uh, with another guy. Yeah. LBJ is shocked by this, you know, and he's known this guy his whole life. He says to Herbert Hoover, he says, how do you, how do you know? How can you, you know, I, I'm, he's just so shocked. How can you tell, <laughs> Edgar? How can you tell these guys? Yeah, you know? it's one of the most it's incredible stories. Moment, it is a, it, that moment is, is that. interesting because obviously um, 
Hoover, who had a very intense uh, sort of witch hunt for homosexuals throughout his entire career with his own closeted life. But that story of Walter Jenkins is is one of the great uh, subplots of the movie. I think it could actually yeah. be a whole movie unto itself because he had been Johnson's aide since 1938 and had helped him win and serve in, in the House of Representatives, win and serve in the Senate, be, as helped him as vice president, and now was essentially his chief of staff. Uh, Bill Moyers told me if he hadn't been thrown under the bus once he was caught in that YMCA and, and sort of fired because he was gay— uh, Vietnam might have never happened because he was huh. his closest confidant outside of Lady Bird. Yeah. And Johnson uh, was constantly, uh, you know, being harangued by by McNamara and all the other generals who would always, of course, say this time, even though we failed this last time, we'll get it right. We'll just throw in more troops and we'll get it right. We'll shock and awe them and we'll we'll get out of win and get out, right. you know, and uh Walter Jenkins had been a, a guy to say, are these guys for real? Is this something I should, you know, and he was a great counterbalance to those other opinions. Whether that's yeah. true, I'm sure um, Mr. Moyers is, is speculating, yeah. obviously, but he was that close is yeah. all I'm saying. And it was such a tragic story. The well, way Whatever it happened up. to him. He actually ends up going back to Austin uh, okay. with his family. I think he became an accountant. And okay. if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken, uh, LBJ reconnected with him when he went back to Austin really? after he retired. Okay. Well, you know, back in the days before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, he had the perfect excuse to get out of the draft. So <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the, the best time to come out, I think. <laughs> it's It was a, you know, it was a tough time to be homosexual. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, throughout the movie, you see LBJ treat poor Hubert Humphrey <laughs> terribly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he, the guy who eventually became his running mate, he treats him like total crap, like he's a redheaded stepchild. <laughs> Did they become close or was Humphrey just a political tool for LBJ to placate the liberal wing of the party? I, you know, I think that um, LBJ was often, uh, he would he would manipulate people as needed to accomplish the ends he, right. he saw, and and fortunately most of the things he sought were very very constructive goals. He passed some of the most incredible legislation since FDR. He passed, uh, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Head Start, doubled the education uh, budget, increased spending on infrastructure, like an incredible array of things that actually improve the lives of of people, and to do that. He was always, sometimes even bullying people. And in the case of Humphrey, he he suspected he would be his vice president. He knew that to to win over the liberals, which he would des- desperately need if he was going to lose the South, Humphrey would be the perfect guy. But he he wasn't entirely comfortable with the choice, and he dangled it in front of Humphrey until the very yeah. last second. Yeah. I don't think Humphrey knew, even as he was flying to the convention, for sure that he was the <laughs> going to be the <laughs> VP choice. And I, I think it's just, again, uh, people describe LBJ as being in so many different things, kind and cruel, mm-hmm. competent and, you know, dysfunctional, yeah. uh, like a whole range of unbelievable adjectives. And one of them was uh, occasionally being, uh, you know, a bully, you yeah. know, so occasionally. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. But he, out of love, you know, he yeah. loved his country and he, right. would, he would bully you right. to get it. But not, you know, sometimes more selfishly, too, right. I'm sure. Well, you know, in his personal life, you see him snapping at Lady Bird, his wife, a lot. And there's a scene 
with his daughter that seems to indicate that they probably didn't have too much of a relationship. Was he better at fostering political relationships than real relationships? It depends on who you talk to, I think. Um, he's certainly, another another Moyers quote that Robert Schenken told me was that, um, I never liked the man very much, but I loved him. And I think that's, the, unfortunately, uh, he was, um, you know, I can relate in a certain way to that Texas uh, masculinity. My own father was raised on ranches uh, all throughout Texas. And there is a, a kind of, fighter, survivor, uh, uh, sort of, you know, a pioneer spirit that is is just was different than the way yeah. men are today. And he was very much a throwback. Uh, and, you know, he um, fathers weren't uh, sometimes as close to their kids and especially working fathers right. who worked insane hours. And I, it was actually Brian's idea to put in that scene right. uh, where he speaks to his daughter and you get a sense of, wow, he's... He might be sacrificing a lot to uh, to be the leader of the free world. Yeah, and you, you see that in Trumbo too. Yeah, Brian. absolutely. Uh, and again, a, a very much very similar in that way that the, it was just because Trumbo's daughters described it to us that way that he was a kind of old fashioned father where kids were to be seen and mm-hmm. not heard. I heard that a lot when I was a kid. That's why kids are to be seen and not heard. Well, that you wouldn't hear that in a typical. Uh, you know, progressive school in, in yeah. California these days. And it's interesting that you went into filmmaking. Yeah. Well, again, I, you know, it's, I, I, I think I was rebelling. I wanted to tell stories and I, and uh, for a while I was supposed to be seen and not heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier Dick Russell, Senator Dick Russell, who was LBJ's mentor and kind of one of his best friends. And he was a Dixiecrat, and he, he has a tough time with the civil rights legislation. Um, there's a little bit of a question as to what his motivation was, whether he was a racist or whether mm-hmm. it was states' rights and so mm-hmm. forth. And mm-hmm. there is a scene where Senator Russell, played brilliantly by Frank Langella, talks about mourning the passing of civility and etiquette yes. mm-hmm. and process in the Senate. <clears throat> and uh, party loyalty. Yep. And I think people forget that in the days of LBJ and Russell, it wasn't yep. all this acrimony and bitterness. The Senate was supposed to be the civilized place. Yeah. I wonder if if it's if it it was there was a certain amount of like we've talked about a compromise and horse trading, but there was quite a bit of conflict as well. And mm-hmm. as we all know, whenever you're the person, whenever your cause is what you're talking about, it's the civil, you know, uh, patriotic yeah. cause. <laughs> and I, I do think that uh, Russell, who was a segregationist through and through, there's no question about that, um, believed that uh, segregation somehow was part of protecting some old uh, code, some old social order, not not appreciating how much that social order had depended on abusing an entire uh, group of people, like yeah. a, an entire race, an entire um, group of, of Americans, of human beings. And that was a consciousness Johnson did not accept. And that that is, uh, you know, again, I it's a fa- that, that relationship with, with Russell and Johnson is a father-son story. I love my father, and I've, yeah. I've learned a tremendous amount of, about honor, honesty, hard work, uh, incredible values 
but he, I did see growing up that his his political philosophies were so radically different from mine, and I couldn't figure it out. And that's again mm -hmm. partly why I tell these stories is I just want to understand the psychology. I'm not, I do judge to some extent. I can't help that, but I mostly want to just understand. Yeah, yeah, and on on a certain level, it seems that he has this love of the process of the Senate. Yes. But I, you know, I'll be interested to see how the movie is received by the public. Uh, I know the critics are going to love it because it's just absolutely excellent, but I'd be interested to see what the public thinks in this political environment, because he was the ultimate Washington insider, smoky backroom deals and all. And right now, both sides, there seems to be much anti-Washington, anti-establishment anger, Everyone mm -hmm. seems to want an outsider, whether it's Bernie or Trump. Do you get a sense that LBJ would probably have a tough time today? It's interesting. I think he might have a tough time, although if anybody could navigate uh, a complicated set of forces that were in opposition, he, he would be one of your better choices because he actually had that much experience. People look down on experience now in Washington. It's a, having experience in Washington is a, is a negative. Yeah. For Johnson, it was a huge positive. He, he knew what mattered. He knew what was at stake for every senator. He knew their wives. He knew their kids. He right. knew he knew them as people, as opposed to as the enemy. And that that ability to treat people like people, as opposed to just a member of the opposite party, he would excel at. And the thing that I, you brought up such a, a important point, important to me, is that there is a tendency now to delegitimize government to such an extent yeah. that it's. It is that 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 campaign to do so is kind of fulfilling its own prophecy because if, as you keep electing people uh, who don't trust government to go into government and don't think it's going to do any good, they will make it as dysfunctional as they have yeah. promised it will be. And I, I, if this film does nothing else, I hope it reminds people that there is a possibility when good people are elected, good government can happen. And it's not about yeah. small government or or big government. It's about better government. Isn't there isn't there some shouldn't there be since it's the people we elect, it's for us, it's our government. Shouldn't we try to figure out a way to re-legitimize uh, uh, you know public service and yeah. and and the power of the government to improve the quality of our lives? LBJ did that. You may disagree mm -hmm. with how he did it. But he cared about that, uh, and I, I think there's such a, I, and I, to be honest, I think it mostly comes from the right that the the instinct to perpetually look at, as Ronald Reagan said, government as the problem and not the solution. But government is only exists to create solutions. That's all it's for. And if it if it if you lose faith in that, then what what's left? And you know, we were talking off mic earlier, and I was telling you I had uh, Senators Trent Lott and Tom Daschle in a while back, and they were talking about how they lived in Washington. They hung out with each other's families in service of their constituents. They spent all their time in Washington because that's where things got done, and they Absolutely. got to know the people they were dealing with. That so, was LBJ yeah. too. He he didn't yeah. do anything else. He didn't read books. <laughs> he didn't go go to movies. He didn't do anything but politics. Yeah. Even when he went back to his ranch, it was just known as the Western White House. <laughs> well, I'm curious as a director and a writer, what do you look for in a story in general? I, you know, I the reason I've navigated to these, the reason I the reason I've migrated to these kinds of stories, I think, is that they are so layered. They are about. Uh, flawed and competent 
people with complicated psychologies and even philosophies and spirituality. It's about the soul of the character, but it's set against these very high stakes uh, predicaments that a whole nation is finds itself in, and that yeah. that to me is great storytelling. It's 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 something you learn reading, uh, you know, classic theater of Shakespeare and the Greek theater. You, the Greeks, you you want. Um, stories to work at every possible level. And I think that's how you create suspense. And if they're also about things, about things that matter and and help you uh, work out your own relationship to these issues, then I think it's, I just think it's more engaging um, to, to have things be working at so many different levels. Uh, before we go, uh, just to throw back to your last film, uh, when you were writing and directing Trumbo, did you find yourself thinking, "My God, fifty years ago, this could have been me"? <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't loved uh, that as well. I didn't movie. write it. I just directed a John oh, McNamara, okay. the great, were, oh, in a movie about screenwriters. I have to okay. quickly throw the big yeah. sc screenplay credit to John McNamara. Okay, but I, but both of us would have been blacklisted uh, yeah. fifty years ago. There's no question about it. Especially making a movie about the blacklist, yeah. uh, exposing the persecution of people. Um, just for their political beliefs, it would have gotten you blacklisted. Lee yeah. Grant was was blacklisted for twelve years of her incredible acting career uh, because she went to a funeral for a blacklisted writer and implied that the stress of being blacklisted killed him. Yeah. Well, J. Edgar Hoover probably wouldn't have been your friend, I imagine. <laughs> he would have had a you big file on, on me radar. by now, yeah, yeah. Well, Jay Roach, the film is just fantastic. I highly recommend it to everyone. It's called All The Way. Uh, when does it premiere on HBO? On May 21st, Saturday night. Terrific. We well, got to see this movie, folks. Jay Roach, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Bain. Great, great interview. I really right. appreciate it. Thanks again to Jay Roach for coming on the show. All the Way airs on Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern on HBO. Or you can watch it anytime with a subscription to HBO Go or HBO Now. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics or click on the donate button on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics, or visit Kickass Politics on Facebook. And while you're there, recommend Kickass Politics to your friends on your social media. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.